All right. Well, the element that we're going to talk about tonight is probably the least understood in, in the church, and I would say probably the element of worship that creates the most confusion. And I think because it creates the most confusion, it's oftentimes the most controversial as well. And not only that, but also I think uh, it oftentimes even in its practice, people are not quite certain as to what it is that they're supposed to do during the worship service. And of course, what I'm talking about tonight is the sacraments. Now, when I mention the sacraments, I'm talking about baptism and the Lord's Supper. And because it is very controversial, I, I, I found a quote by someone who sort of talks about the different extremes of the way that people will view the sacraments. They said, some treat the sacraments as magic, having power in and of themselves. These people believe that hearts are cleansed and sins forgiven apart from the truth in Jesus Christ and faith in him. There will be those who believe that actually as you uh, are baptized by the water, that there's magical powers that would save you and you would actually become saved. Or there are those who believe in the, the bread and the, the wine, that if you're actually partaking of, of the body of Christ and grace is being adjusted into you as you eat of those elements. Others, though, regard them simply as quaint traditions to be observed, inventing altar calls and other worship practices where the sacraments are replaced with man's ways of public confession and rededication to Christ. So there's sort of these two extremes. You know, people who will think that it's, there's actually dispensing of grace in that, you know, in the actual elements and others that just sort of see it as, as a tradition. But there's a whole lot that's in between those two extremes and we wanna talk about that tonight. Um, I would say this, I'm going to uh, uh, probably do the lesson tonight a little bit different than we typically have just because it is sort of a, a, a different topic where there's a could be a lot of questions there uh, I think we've had various backgrounds and so uh, people may have uh, comments or, or things that could come up and I want to make sure that we have the time to talk about what we believe as a church and and how that uh, the sacraments are to be used in worship so I'm going to ask you if you could to sort of hold your questions to the end or maybe periodically through the lesson I might just say okay we'll stop and take questions right now but I want to make sure that we sort of move ahead but I provided some scrap paper some blue pages and some pens so if you have questions you can write them down if you forget so you don't forget because I don't really want to by any means ever squelch any discussion about anything having to do with the Word of God but I do want to make sure that we do everything decently and in order as Presbyterians and we're able to get through the things uh, that we're talking about tonight so anyway we're, let's we're going to talk about three things first of all we're just going to talk about sacraments in general and then we're going to look at baptism and then we're going to look at the Lord's Supper and um, and talk about those things and and sort of how uh, we are to uh, think about those in terms of the worship service. So we're not going to get into all the theological nuances of these different things. I do want to talk about a little bit of that, but I really want us to think about in terms of worship and what it is that we're to do whenever there's a baptism here at Kirk of the Plains, or what are we to do whenever we come and partake of the Lord's Supper. So, uh, so we'll talk about that. So before we talk about what a sacrament is, let me talk about why the sacraments are necessary. <clears throat> the faith that we have as Christians, the faith that we confess, is not just a, it's not a weak substance, but a very powerful force, as, 
as someone once stated, it leads to a life of thankfulness. I mean, you think about that, guys. You know, the book of Romans tells us that we were once enemies of God. And, and God's work in our heart is so great that it actually changes us to where we are thankful and we are grateful to God. And so there's a, quite a transformation that takes place. And it is that faith that God gives us that is the means by which the Holy Spirit works in our hearts to change us and give us that new life in Jesus Christ. So faith is visible in, in a Christian's life, in the fruits that that Christian bears, and I'm talking about spiritual fruits, not that they're fruity, but spiritual fruits, obviously, and the works that they do. And so by faith, our whole life is transformed in the service of God. So faith is very decisive, it's very powerful, and we need that in our lives as Christians. But you know, you don't have to be a Christian for very long, though, to, um, to get to the point where you begin to have questions and maybe even sometimes have doubts about your faith. And I want to read some questions and just see if you can relate to any of these. It's really, I'm asking the same question about 15 different ways, but just listen and see if you've ever had these thoughts come in your mind. How will I ever receive this faith in the measure that I need it? Or do I really have this true faith in Jesus Christ? Is my faith the real thing? Am I truly born again to a new life? Or am I just one of these people that say they're a Christian, but I'm not really a Christian? Or, you know, the preacher, he might talk about faith, and he talks about regeneration, being uh, made a new creature in Jesus Christ. And these are vital, and they're very beautiful things, but and much to be desired. But can we be sure that we have them? Uh, why do I so often, or why do I often so see so little of the power of faith in my life and so much yet of the power of sin? Why do I time and again resist God uh, doing that which he forbids and forgetting that which he commands? Do I truly have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Now, one day we may say, yes, I'm very sure that I have faith in Jesus Christ, but then the next day we may doubt that, and at points in our lives we may wonder if we're even Christians. And so we often struggle with the question of, are we children of God, saved by his grace and made righteous through Jesus Christ? Now, maybe you've not questioned your faith to that extent, but maybe you've had doubts or you've had questions about your faith, and that's where the sacraments are so helpful and can be beneficial to the church when it comes to people thinking about their faith in Jesus Christ. Now I'll explain that by sharing just a little bit about what a sacrament is, okay? And if you have your sheet, uh, this sheet is really uh, chapters 27, 28, and 29 of the Westminster Confession of Faith. And then there's a couple of questions from the Westminster Larger Catechism, 176 and 177. But if you'll look at Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 27, 1, it says, sacraments are holy signs and seals of the covenant of grace immediately instituted by God to represent Christ and his benefits and to confirm our interest in him as also to put a visible difference between those that belong unto the church and the rest of the world and solemnly to engage them to the service of God in Christ according to his word. Got it? <laughs> Your question is, what again is a sacrament? You know, I'm, I'm sure. I mean, that's a great definition. And if we had time to unpack it, boy, there's a lot that is in there. But let me just boil this down much simpler for you. A sacrament 
is both a sign and a seal of the gospel. Okay? It's a sign and a seal of the gospel. Or some people will say of the covenant of grace. Sort of the same thing as the gospel. Okay? But but what does that mean? It It's, it's really in one sense sort of a, a picture of the gospel. If you remember uh, last Sunday when I preached on worship, I talked about in our worship services, the word of God must be central in everything we do. So what do we do? We, we read the word of God. We preach the word of God. We sing the word of God. We pray the word of God. And I also said we do what? We see the word of God as well. And that's what the sacraments are. It's a sense in which we get to, to see in a tangible way what the gospel of Jesus Christ is and the things it represents. Now, lest you think that we're just making up this idea of a sign and a seal, and I'll explain that a little bit more, what those things are. But look, if you would, to Romans chapter 4 and verse 11. Let somebody read Romans 4. Verse 11. Just verse 11? Just verse 11. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. Okay, so so let's, you, you know, where do we get this idea of a sign and a seal? from scripture will we glean it from the sacrament of circumcision you know it's called as you see here it says that, that Abram received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised and so you see there both that language of a sign and the seal now a sign is a distinguishing mark that points to something that exists and another way to say that maybe would be it is something that is tangible that points to something that exists that we can't see. So it's a, something physical that points to a spiritual reality, you know, in, in the sense of a sacrament. But thinking about that in, in, a, in modern terms, you know, what, what would a sign be? Well, just take a highway sign. You know, you're, you're coming to Bible study tonight and you're coming from Wichita and you see a sign that says Andover, five miles. Is that sign Andover? No, but it's pointing you to the reality of this thing called Andover, which is a city that we live. And so baptism and the Lord's Supper is the same thing. It is a sign. It's something tangible that points us to a spiritual reality. So when we see the water in baptism, we ought not just to be thinking, oh, a pastor's going to put water on that person's head. You know, they ought to be thinking that actually this is pointing to some a spiritual reality that happens to the, the gospel. Same thing with the Lord's Supper. It points to that, that spiritual reality. And so uh, that's what a sign is. And it's, But it's more than just a sign. It's also a seal. And a seal is something that confirms or authenticates or shows that something is genuine. Um, another way to say that is a seal was, um, in biblical days, was understood to protect a promise, uh, to emphasize an obligation, or maybe just like solidify a covenant. 
Um, it was it's developed to validate something, if you might want to put it that way. And the simplest example I can think of that is if, if, if I had this document that was here, and, and I received this document that said it was from the king, well, okay, that's great, but how do I know that's really from the king? How do I know it's valid or it's genuine? And, but I would look, and the king would have folded this and put wax on it and then taken his signet ring, and he would have put that signet ring on, on that seal. And so I would know when I saw that that this was actually genuine, that what is said in here is backed up with authority. It's not just something that's glibly stated, but it's something that's really true because there's authority that backs that up. Well, you look back at Romans 4. So Abram received a sign of circumcision, okay, and as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith. So, you know, God says, you're righteous, Abram. You're righteous because the promise that I give you of the coming Messiah. Well, you know, I'm sure Abram didn't feel any different, didn't look any more righteous. You know, how does he know that he's really righteous? And God says, well, I give you a sign. I give you something that, that points to that righteousness. And that was what? Circumcision. Okay, but then he also says, it is a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith. So, in other words, it was authenticated. God said, I validated that. You can take this to the bank that you truly are righteous, even though you don't look any different, even though you don't feel any different. You know, you, you have that righteousness because of the promise that I've given you. But he's, he's gotten it by what? By faith. Okay? So, um, you got that in your mind? So, these signs and seals are given by God himself to his people who believe in him by faith. Now, any questions about that, about covenant, or about a sacrament? Okay, well then let's go on to, to baptism. Um, baptism is the sacrament uh, of the new covenant that really replaces uh, the sacrament of the old covenant, which was circumcision. And both of them signify a sealing of the covenant promises of God in Christ. And, and we see that uh, throughout Scripture. So, um, you know, we could turn to a lot of different places. In Genesis 17 is where we see God given the sign of, of uh, circumcision to Abram. But then we see in the New Testament, baptism in Matthew 28, in Acts chapter 2, uh, verses 38 and 39, where... Um, where we see the baptism of an entire household and stuff like that. But there's probably no passage that more clearly ties those two ideas together than Colossians chapter 2. So look at Colossians 2, 11 and 12. Colossians 2, uh, verses 11 and 12. Somebody want to read those two verses? Okay, so you see here in, in this verse the idea of circumcision and baptism. That by, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised 
him, that is Christ, from the dead. So you, you see there those two ideas tied together. And so in circumcision, you had sort of this bloody act of the cutting away of the foreskin of a child, when, a male child when they were eight days old, um, a sign pointing not only to the bloody sacrifice of Christ, where Christ was cut off for the sake of his people, but also the circumcision of the heart. Okay, now what, what do we mean by, and you can answer my questions, you know, what, what do we mean by the circumcision of, of the heart? I mean, I'm thinking circumcision of, of, the, of the, the body is, is, is cutting off that flesh, which, like you said, symbolizes the need for the shedding of blood, but also the cutting off of, of, of the flesh, you know, of, of sin, as it were. And so I think in one sense, one way, one, one of the meanings of circumcision of the heart is to, you know, to, to put aside, as you know, Paul would say, the old man or the ways of the flesh or the ways of, you know, of, of, of sin in some sense. And yeah. To be cut off from that. Yeah. So there's a sense in which we're, we're dead in our sins and, and, and then to have that circumcision of the heart, you'd have, you'd be regenerated. You'd be given that new life in Jesus Christ. And that would be accomplished obviously by the Holy Spirit. You know, it's, it's not just the act but it's a spiritual reality um, behind the sign. Does that make sense? I mean, look, if you would, at Romans chapter 2. Romans 2, 28 and 29. Um, it, it just reminds us that it's not everybody who receives this act of circumcision that was truly uh, people of God. In Romans 2, 28, it says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So, you know, because of what the spirit of God does in a person's heart, you know, a person is made a new creature in Jesus Christ. So the sign is necessary, but not everyone who receives the sign of, of the covenant is is a uh, is a believer so for example you know we baptize infants and I'll get to that in just a m moment you know it doesn't mean that everybody that receives that sign is is a believer in Jesus Christ and that's oftentimes very confusing for people when they come and they've been in a church where they don't baptize children you know they're like oh what are you doing are you thinking that you know usually the comment is something like this are you guys Catholic you know, you guys believe that, you know, you pour that water on that baby's head and, and that baby becomes a believer and becomes saved. And it's like, no, you know, baptism is a what? It's a sign and seal of what? The gospel. Okay. It's telling us that there is a spiritual reality behind this, that God, that God seals those benefits for those who what? Believe. For those who believe. It's not for everybody who receives the sign, but it's for those who believe. So, you know, we baptize our children um, because we believe that God uh, tells us to do that in continuity with the Old Testament. But we still look forward to the day when the Spirit of God works in their hearts and by faith that they trust in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. 
So because Christ shed his blood once for all, no longer do God's covenant people participate in these bloody rites. We see that in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 through 14. And instead, what we do now is we baptize our, our children. Baptism is a sign that points to the same reality as circumcision. Circumcision was the same way, that, that a person would have faith in Yahweh and his covenant promises, and particularly that they would trust that God would send who? Messiah. Yeah, would send Jesus, the Messiah, who would come, and they had faith that God would do that and that his covenant promises are true. Now for us, we're looking backwards. They were looking forward to the Messiah, but we're looking backwards saying we believe that Jesus Christ did come and that he did die and that he did uh, was saved for us. Now, um, anyway, let me just stop there. Is there, is there any questions about anything that I said there? Okay, so so we see the obvious connections between the Old and the New Covenant. Uh, both Old and New Covenant signs point to the, the person of Christ, the sign of circumcision, and like I said, anticipating his saving work, whereas for us, baptism points backwards. Both signs of initiation into God's covenant community into the visible church. And, and that's where we get the idea of baptizing our children. We believe that if you look at the Old Testament, that the Israelites were God's people. I don't think that anybody would dispute that. But we see that those people, we would call the Israelites God's Old Testament church. He would, you know, God had a people in the Old Testament, and he has a people in the New Testament. The people in the Old Testament were the Israelites. The people in the New Testament is the church. And so um, how did God bring people into the church, you know, he brought them in um, by telling them to receive the sign when they were young, even too young to have faith, and to show that it is, would be the work of God that would have to work in their lives. It wasn't because they chose God or what what they did, but it's because of what God did. And so, in that continuity with what God did in the Old Testament, we look at the New Testament, and the New Testament's pretty silent about what to do with children. There are some places that, that give us hints about what God thinks about children. In 1 Corinthians 7, he talks about how they are holy, they are set apart. <coughs> Excuse me. But if, you know, and, and so some people will sometimes say, well, you know, there's no command that says that you should baptize kids. I would agree with that. I've not found that verse yet. But the, really the question ought to be is for us, is if God did this in the Old Testament, then when did he stop the practice in the New Testament? You would expect that there would be a, a command that would say, you know, you should no longer bring your children into the church. Only once they have faith in Jesus Christ should you give them the covenant sign, or the sign of the covenant. Does that make sense? Are you with me? So, um, so that's why we baptize our children in that sense of looking forward to um, the day that Christ would work in them. So children of believers, like adult believers, are members of the visible church. And so you, you'll hear us use the terms communing and non-communing member. And, uh, and those that have not professed faith in Christ and come before the elders and been allowed to come to the Lord's table are what we call non-communing members. They're still members of the church. 
But oftentimes we get that really confused, and 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 that's an unfortunate thing. You know, we'll say, oh, well, that that kid's not a member of the church yet. That's not really technically true. You know, they are a member of the church. They've just not publicly professed faith in Christ yet. And the reason why I say that is, is because, you know, as a member of the church, there are, are certain things that we're looking for our children to profess. We're looking for them to profess faith in Jesus Christ and to bear fruit of their salvation. And uh, when we don't think that way that they're members and we're sort of, um, you know, parents would be sort of uh, consciously talking to their children about Christ and about their faith. And are they walking with him? Because they are members. It's really sort of growing into the position that God has has given to you. And uh, when we don't think of them as members, I think it's so easy for us just to not challenge our children in terms of their faith. And we're just sort of waiting for them one day to sort of pop up and say, Hey, guess what? I became a believer. You know, or, or I'm a Christian now. And so sometimes we get really passive in our churches, unfortunately, when we sort of buy into that terminology. So I really want us to work hard to think about our children and to understand that they are part of the visible church and that we want to constantly be challenging them to walk in, in, in faith in, in Jesus Christ and doing everything that we can uh, to enable them in that. And that includes praying for them, you know, praying with them, uh, walking with them, showing them what that faith looks like and calling them to obedience as well. And, uh, and anyway, so I'll get off my soapbox there. But uh, anyway, so the word of God has never relegated the children of covenant uh, to second-class citizens in the visible church. They are considered members of the visible church. Um, any questions about before I talk about sort of the application about baptism? Wow, you guys are either really tired. I am really good tonight. I'm not sure which, um, but we'll move on. Uh, unfortunately, I think uh, in the church today, uh, baptism has become very man-centered, and it really focuses not so much on what God is doing, but really upon, in mainstream evangelicalism, it seems like it has more to do with what man is doing. In other words, whether somebody's making a public profession of faith or not. So a person is brought for baptism based on what they do and, and their actions. Um, and so there's an emphasis uh, that's really more man-centered than it is God-centered. But when we remember our baptism, you know, that visible sign and seal of God's promise of grace and mercy uh, in our lives through the death, the death and resurrection of Christ, our, our, our oftentimes our weak faith is sort of boistered. In other words, uh, you know, those times when we have questions about our faith and, and struggling and, you know, whether we see, you know, we see that those, uh, those visible signs and it should remind us of the work of God in the hearts of his people. And I think that uh, Ben and I were sort of talking a little bit earlier and um, and we were sort of talking about how sometimes people get caught up in if somebody's been baptized, it's sort of like, well, how, have I have I been a Christian? Have I not been a Christian? Um, do you remember what we were talking about? Yeah. Do you want to sort of share what? Yeah, I think 
it can be easy to think that when we talk about, you know, baptism specifically being a sign of God's promise to his people, because we are so individualistic, we oftentimes say, okay, well, that means that if I've been baptized, does that mean that God is promising that I individually or every individual who has this baptism will be saved? Because what we're still doing is kind of running baptism through this grid of baptism is about me and, and my condition, rather than recognizing baptism is giving us assurances, but it's giving us assurances of the truth of the gospel and that we have an interest in that truth. God is promising to us, like the way it's described, you know, that it's instituted by God to represent Christ and his benefits. So it's pointing, when it's pointing, it's not saying, oh, you've had this personal experience of, of that, but it's saying Christ has accomplished all these things, and there are these benefits that are there for those who are united to Christ by faith, and you, as part of the church, have an interest in that, and that as you as you have that faith, as you've received that faith from God, those things that are true that, that baptism is pointing to are also true of you. So it, it does, for the believer, it does point to the reality that's within our hearts, but only in a kind of secondary way. It primarily points us and, and everyone, even an unbeliever who received baptism, to the objective truth of the gospel. Um, so it's almost like if, 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 if we can say, okay, that table there is representation of, of Christ and his benefits. It's like saying that that's right there for you, and you are invited to, to come and partake of that, as it were. Um, and so it's not, it's, you know, it's not just saying everyone who's received it, baptism has received Christ, but it's saying that Christ is there and everyone is, is called to respond in faith. And then as they do, then that sign is itself saying, yeah, and you've experienced that as well. And I, and I think there, there's a sense in which, as it says in the first answer, <coughs> sacraments are holy signs and seals on the covenant of grace immediately instituted by God to represent Christ and his benefits and to confirm our interest in him. Um, it, it shows us, I think, as we look at our baptism, whether our heart is interested in Christ or not. You know, as Ben said, it can be beneficial not only for the believer, but for the unbeliever as well. And, you know, it may be that a person's heart is cold towards Christ, and and they have, and that person's been baptized. Maybe they're a covenant child, and they're seeing, yeah, I don't really have much interest in Christ. You know, that sort of is a, is a testimony <clears throat> against that person, but it also could be, uh, it could be a, a teaching opportunity for parents or for the church to come alongside and, and challenge that person and talk with them and find out you know why there's not that interest in Christ and you know what the condition of their heart is and calling them to repentance and even praying for that uh, child right where they're at and uh, I think oftentimes we just wait till children go off and become prodigal children and then we want to get on our knees and we want to pray for them but you know how great would it I mean it's not great to have kids who aren't interested in Christ but, you know, if you have those kids and they're growing up in the church, how awesome to know that while they're young and to be praying for them and encouraging them and bringing to bear, you know, all the, that, the covenant community upon that child to come around them and pray that they would come to faith in Jesus Christ. So, you know, as we see a baptism being done, <coughs> there's actually things we are to do uh, while that baptism is going on, not just going, oh, isn't that baby so cute? 
oh, I wonder if that baptismal gown has been passed down through the family, or did somebody make that, or did they just, I mean, you know, instead of those kind of things going on, um, actually the confession talks about how we are to improve, or how is our baptism to be improved by us. Look at question 167. Mm. I didn't give you that, did I? I did not. Oh, okay. I meant to put that on there. Okay, this is really long, so I'm not going to read it all to you. But it said, how is our baptism to be improved <coughs> by us? The needful but much neglected duty of improving our baptism is to be performed by us all our life long, especially in the time of temptation and when we are present at the administration of it to others by serious and thankful consideration of the nature of it and of the ends for which Christ instituted it. Anyway, so on and so forth. But basically, um, what they're saying is, is that when we see that baptism that is going on, there are things that we're to do. We're to, to think about that spiritual reality. We're to say, <clears throat> for those of us that's been baptized, and I think everybody in this room has been baptized, you know, when we see this baptism that's going on, we should be thinking, okay, this, this uh, is a sign and a seal of all the benefits of Christ. Am I walking in those benefits? Have I received those? And am I walking by faith every day in those benefits? Or have my, is my heart grown cold? You know, am I giving in to temptation? Is my, am I living a life of worldliness? So there's sort of a check of our own spirit in one sense to say, do I see the work of the Holy Spirit in my heart, and I'm, am I walking in faith with Him, or am I living a worldly, selfish, sinful life? Now, <clears throat> we're never completely one or the other, right? We struggle. There's spiritual warfare that goes on our in our life, but the overall bent of our life, you know, where do I see? Do I see the work of the Spirit of God in my heart, or do I not? You know, that's one thing that we are to do as we uh, participate in baptism. The other thing that we do is we are to pray for that child and pray for those parents and be praying that that child will come to faith in Christ at a young age. Be praying for those parents as they're tired and weary and they have all those other kids that they're trying to raise as well. And you know, pray for them as they have family worship. Pray for them as, as they're living out their faith before their kids and all this stuff. And as these kids are encountering temptations and struggles you know, in various places in life that God would guard and protect them. And uh, we're also saying, you know, I'm not only going to pray for them. Now, we don't do this during the worship service, but in the body life of the church, then we say, I want to be here to help that child. So I want to teach Sunday school or, you know, I want to I be a greeter. and I want to talk to that child when that child comes into the church. I'm not just going to talk to the parents. I'm going to squat down and I'm going to talk to the kids, too, as they come in because they're part of the covenant community. I want them to know that they're part of the church and they are loved by Christ. And God has put them here for a reason and put them in their family for a particular reason. So, you know, there are things that we do even in, in the life of the church as well. So, anyway, I'll stop there as far as baptism. But is there any questions or, or comments about baptism? One other just comment. Yeah, Actually, sure. I just think it's interesting that when it talks about baptism and that question especially... It says, you know, in terms of the life of the believer, there's kind of two times when it should really be on your mind. One is 
like you said, when you're seeing a baptism take place. But the other is in, in times of temptation. Yeah. You know, and I do think, I think we can sometimes make it too complicated in terms of thinking about, well, how does this actually strengthen my faith? Or how does this actually help me? And really, it's like with any other sign. Like, you know, you, we've all watched movies or heard songs or something where, you know, someone, maybe, you know, a husband is being tempted to be unfaithful to his wife. And then he, you know, looks down and sees his wedding ring and is kind of pulled back from doing that. It's like, well, why? It's like, well, this is a sign of, 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 a, of, a, of a reality um, that is there, that he's in this relationship, that he's committed to this person. He's just as committed, you know, but the ring is significant. And in that time of temptation or whatever, it, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a reminder and a call to faithfulness in some way. And I think in a, much the same way, things like baptism or the Lord's Supper, you know, act as the, that kind of check for our hearts to say, yeah, this is, this is the gospel wrapped up here and it reminds us of who we are in Christ and how we need to be living and it calls us back from that. Yeah. Oh, excellent. That's very true. That's very good, Ben. Okay, the Lord's Supper, uh, very quickly. Um, in the same way that baptism is sort of the <coughs> Old Testament sign of, or the New Testament counterpart to, to circumcision, uh, so the Lord's Supper is uh, the New Testament counterpart to the Passover. Now, you got to be careful there. You know, just because it's uh, the, the it's an Old Testament sacrament and New Testament sacrament, it doesn't mean that everything carries over from the Old Testament to the New Testament one-on-one. We don't typically do that with uh, baptism and uh, circumcision because they're so different. But because uh, the Passover was a meal and the Lord's Supper is a meal and things, sometimes I see people that will want to carry over all the elements and take the Old Testament meaning and put that on the New Testament. And that's that's a that's a very dangerous thing. You've got to be careful not to go any farther than Scripture goes on that. Um, but anyway, but talking about the Lord's Supper, there, there are various views about from the Lord's Supper. And I'm just going to go over these very quickly just so you know that they exist. But there's basically four common views. One's a Roman Catholic Church view where the Lord's Supper is seen as the Eucharist or the Mass. Okay, And the Roman Catholic Church believes in what's known as transubstantiation, where the elements actually turn into the actual corporal body and the blood of Jesus Christ. And, uh, you know, I don't know if this is still the practice, but at one time, the priest would have to consume the leftover wine and stuff because it actually had become the body and blood of Christ. So it was holy. You know, you couldn't just throw it in the trash can or, you know, pour it down the sink or something like that because it actually become the body and the blood of Christ. So, so that's one view. Another... It's a Lutheran view, um, often termed consubstantiation. I, I think I'm coming to learn that not all Lutherans like that term, um, but, uh, but that's oftentimes what that's called. And uh, the elements of the bread and the wine uh, don't actually change substance. With the Roman Catholic view, they, they think that the, the bread and the wine actually do change substance to become the body and the blood of Christ. The Lutheran view does not believe that, but they do believe that it is actual corporal body and blood of Christ it's found in and under and with the elements when offered at the Lord's Supper. And um, if you ask me to explain that more completely, I probably can't. Okay, that's just I'm just quoting what is is believed there, so I don't misrepresent our brothers and sisters. 
uh, in that denomination. The third is the memorial view, and that's probably the most common in broadly evangelicalism, and it says that the elements of bread and wine are merely representation of the body and the blood of Christ. Christ's presence at the Lord's Supper is no different than his presence any other time, even like here. He's as much present in the elements of the Lord's Supper as he is at Bible study at Kirk of the Plains on Tuesday nights. You know, the sacrament is simply a time to remember the death of Christ and to recommit one's life to honor and to serve him. The Reformed view, <coughs> or the Calvinistic position, which some say lands oftentimes somewhere between Lutheranism and, and Protestantism um, in the memorial view, teaches that when a person receives the bread and the wine by faith, he also receives what is signified, namely Jesus Christ and all his benefits. However, rather than uh, being a physical feeding upon Christ, as in some of the other views, the Catholic and the Lutheran view, it's a spiritual feeding Christ that's, um, that's really where we are lifted up into the, the heavenlies uh, with Christ to commune with him. You know, and, and I say that, and, and that's even controversial, I think, in some of the Calvinist view, but, um, but where that idea comes from is, is that Christ's human nature is not omnipresent. In other words, he's not present everywhere. So Christ can't come down and be with us at the table bodily, physically, um, because his human, his human body is not omnipresent. Um, but on the contrary, the Holy Spirit who unites us to Christ lifts us up by faith to the heavenly places to nourish our soul upon the living in um, Christ. <coughs> Excuse me. And so, to be sure, this is a, this is a very profound mystery, I know. Uh, even so, we believe that God who states that, that he has raised us with him, that is with Christ, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, like it says in Ephesians 2, 6. Um, we also believe our Lord when he says, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And that's John 6, 54. So just as our, our physical lives are sustained and nourished by physical food, so our souls are sustained and nourished upon the Son of God, the one whom we depend for forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Um, and, um, you know, if, if you want to read more, you can read John chapter 6, verses 27 through 56, you know, roughly. Um, and it, it talks more about that. Um, but, but here again, it's not just everybody who comes up and takes the bread and everybody who takes the wine that communes with Christ. You know, it is as we come and we receive that by faith. So as we come to the Lord's Supper, you know, we should come not just looking and going, oh, they got that bread? I don't like that kind of bread. I wish they get this kind of bread instead. Or, hey, this is nasty wine. Why can't they get better wine? Or, I prefer grape juice or, you know, whatever. That's not what it is that we're to be thinking, but it is a sense of coming and communing with with Jesus Christ. Um, look, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse uh, 16. 1 Corinthians 10, 16. Excuse me, I'm sorry. I got a tickle in my throat tonight. Um, 1 Corinthians 10, 16. Uh, Paul says, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation 
in the blood of Christ. The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? So there is a sense in which it's not just a, a remembrance, not just a sense of, oh, this is you know reminding us of what Christ did on the cross, but there's actually a participation. There's a fellowship there you know, with Jesus Christ that goes on at the times when we take the bread and the cup. So, you know, some might ask and say, well, you know, why, why do we have to receive Christ, you know, like this by faith? You know, why do we have to have the preaching of the word? Why do we have to have the sacraments so often? And I think we've already answered that because oftentimes our faith is weak. You know, as we walk in this world, um, we need to hear the preaching of the word of God. We need to partake of the sacraments and to be reminded of the promises and the benefits that we have in Jesus Christ. Now, I'm sort of um, using this term, benefits of Christ. Go back and read the confession and the larger and shorter catechism. And it unpacks what those benefits are and, and to think about those things that we have received uh, by Christ. Um, Michael Horton says, even if we could amass sufficient information, our faith would be weak apart from God's con constant persuasive rhetoric. In other words, if faith is created and sustained through the proclamation of the gospel, then our faith is sealed and confirmed and strengthened when we hear the word of God preached and when we partake of the sacraments. So um, if we're to be people who need to walk by faith, it's something that we ought to appreciate uh, the sacraments. Let me just close by reading uh, some comments by John Payne. He said, um, this does not mean um, that we are getting saved every time we hear the gospel or receive the supper. Rather, it means that whenever we hear the glorious gospel preached, or see the gospel exhibited before our eyes in the right administration of the sacraments, we embrace Christ again and again with ever-increasing measures of faith, love, assurance, and hope. There's that sense in which we're embracing Christ you know, more, more completely. Uh, he goes, isn't this the purpose of the ordinary means of grace? To drive us over and over again to Christ and his perfect work of redemption and away from sin and idolatry. Aren't these good reasons to partake often, perhaps even weekly? Um, and uh, I know at uh, Heartland that we partake once a month. Many churches do partake of the Lord's Supper every week. And then a baptism just whenever they have the opportunity, when the opportunity presents itself. Um, but there is a there is an argument for that that to uh, partake of the Lord's Supper on a weekly basis is a good thing. It could strengthen us, you know, in our in our souls and uh, in our dependence and, and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and faith in Him. Um, some people will say, well, but if you take of the Lord's Supper every week, then won't it become mundane? You know, won't it just become sort of yeah, okay, that's what we're doing. Well, but you could say that about the preaching of the Word of God or the singing of the Word of God or praying of the Word of God. And so, you know, there, there is a there's a good argument for a weekly communion. Uh, right now, we don't have elders of, of our church. We're being overseen by a presbytery committee. So we have elders from a distance. Um, so we don't really have the sacraments at this point in time. But, uh, but someday we'll have that opportunity and to be able to partake of those. And as we do, I hope 
some of this stuff will come back to your mind as you're as you're seeing these things happen in worship. That you know, it's not just like, oh, this is a special Sunday because it's baptism, but you know, it's really a wow. We get to see a picture of the gospel today. You know, and behind this is not only the signs but the seal. You know that God has validated this, and that you know what the gospel says is true. You know, so am I praying for that that child or that person being baptized that this would be a reality in their life? Am I contemplating that myself, and am I living out that reality? You know, as we come to the Lord's Supper, am I participating? Am I communion with Christ spiritually, feeding upon Him spiritually, and being strengthened? You know, our God is are so good. You know, we live in a in a world and a time where everybody's all, well, you know, the preaching of the Word of God is outdated, it's obsolete, you know? People are more visual now. Well, you know, the Lord's even given us visual, hasn't He? You know, that we might uh, know and see the Word of God as well. So, praise be to God. Anyway, any questions or comments? Or All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You so much for... Uh, the word that you have given to us, and I know this is just a quick overview, we just got a chance to look at a few things in, in Scripture tonight. But I pray as we, we contemplate these things, and, and really just not only think about the sacraments, but Lord, all the elements of worship that you have prescribed for, your, for us, for your church. May we be very careful, Lord, to, to, to love these things, and and enjoy them. And Father, even prepare for worship uh, as we come to your presence with your people each Lord's Day. I pray that you would help us to grow as, as a church body uh, to, to love you more fully and to be able, Lord, to give uh, expression in these, uh, in, these uh, um, in our times of worship with you uh, corporately uh, to do it, Lord, not only with passion, which seems to be the utmost priority in today's culture, but Lord, let us do it with our whole being, Lord, with our minds and, and our wills and, and our emotions and every part of us <coughs> to bring honor and glory to you. Uh, we thank you, Lord, and pray these things in your name. Amen.